what I found for a lot of them is the fight or the struggle or the biggest issue in their lives was to feel part of the community, to feel included in their church and in their Christian community. And they weren't feeling that way. I also wanted to create a balanced picture of what their faith looked like. I did have a lot of academic colleagues who considered women's involvement in Christian churches to be akin to an abusive relationship or to be brainwashed in some way. And I personally didn't have that experience in the church and the women I met don't have that experience. So I wanted to show that you know, the church can be a, a tremendous place of comfort, of healing, of connection, but it's not all one-sided. Hey friends, welcome back to the podcast with me, Jonathan Puddle, and my co-host Trifina Perumala-Gagnon. Our guest on today's show is sociologist and author Dr. Katie Gadini, and we talk today all about the factors forcing single evangelical women out of the church. Katie's major research project is available now to read in her, her book, The Struggle to Stay, Why Single Evangelical Women Are Leaving the Church. And so rather than a focus on faith deconstruction that, that we have been talking about a lot here, we talked in this interview about the kind of uh, cultural norms, the powerful ideas that have developed within evangelicalism that alienate people and cause them to question whether church is a place for them. We discuss the ideal Christian woman idea, how similar concepts and ideas have developed, touching on sexuality, purity culture, race, uh, social standing, affluence, wealth, uh, and a bunch of the different things that, that end up contributing to a place where single women, especially in their 30s, don't feel like they're included in the life of the church. If you are uh, a woman, if you're a pastor, if you care about the state of the church, there's something in this interview for you. I commend this to you. I think uh, everybody will be able to take something interesting away from this discussion. So check the show notes at the end for details on Katie and, and where to get her book. But let's get right into it. Well, I'm thrilled to welcome to the show today, Dr. Katie Gadini. Katie, this book, The Struggle to Stay, Why Single Evangelical Women Are Leaving the Church, is not only uh, really uh, well-researched and thoroughly sourced, and uh, I went through the bibliography and I'm like, hot damn, the number of books she is pulling on, the other, sorry, not books, works that she's pulling on from here. So that's all absolutely great. But, you know, also your prose is beautiful. You are really a really evocative writer while presenting hard-hitting, uh, well-researched details. So I, I, I just, I'm, I'm in awe and I'm very thankful and it's a great honor and pleasure to have you here. Thanks, Jonathan. And thanks, Trifina. It's great to be here with you both. And yeah, I'm excited to discuss the book with you and hear your thoughts. We're so glad you're here. And Jonathan is not lying about how lovely your writing is. So I crammed the book this morning, just to be <laughs> honest. I had kids throwing up last night and I was like, okay, I'm going to skim it and I'm going to just get it done. I was telling Jonathan, I used to open like the preface, like the preface, and I couldn't put it down. I'm like, your writing is so good and engaging. I had to actually read every word. So thank you. Thank you. Cause I know that takes a lot of effort just to make it flow as well as it did. It was, it was a fun read and what shouldn't have been a fun read. 
Good. I'm glad. And I really wrote it in that way on purpose so that it would be enjoyable or accessible, maybe is a better Mm. word for women in the church who needed this book. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not being a woman, but being a reader, I, I think you've, I think you nailed that. Uh, we, you know, we just, even in the last few episodes, we've been talking deconstruction, we've been talking wrestling with your faith. I mean, that's been big parts of Trifina and I's own journeys individually. My wife and I went through deconstruction like 15 years ago, but that's not, that's not strictly your topic here. And you're kind of coming at it from it from another angle, which I found was really, really worthwhile. It's like this this sociological look at Mm -hmm. kind of like the toxicity factors, if I can use that language, um, that are causing harm to women in the church. Some like causing some of them to leave, causing like some to stay, but but us remaining in harm, and especially for women of color or for uh, women who are not upper middle class or comfortably middle class, um, and 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 not and not. Uh, I think one of the things too that really touched me as someone who has a very complex relationship with the church is you were very generous and kind mm. to the reality of of community and church as a positive influencer. So I'd love to hear kind of from from the outset, why this topic, why this approach to it? Um, how did, yeah, how did this happen? I wanted to look at originally women's approach to sexuality within the church. So I myself grew up in American evangelicalism, U.S. American evangelicalism, and was part of purity culture, which was a huge part of the 80s, 90s, early 2000s. So when I moved to England and was doing my PhD, I wanted to know how had that purity culture translated or moved across the pond. So I set out to kind of investigate that in sexuality, especially for women that were in their 30s, who were still single, unmarried, um, who were not necessarily receiving the lessons that we received as teens or in our early 20s around sexuality. And then what I found is that sexuality was a big topic for some women, but not for everyone. And there were other issues that were more important to them. So I had to shift my research agenda, so to speak, to be more inclusive and more open to what were important Mm. to these women. And what I found for a lot of them is the fight or the struggle or the biggest issue in their lives was to feel part of the community, to feel included in their church and in their Christian community. And they weren't feeling that way. I also wanted to create a balanced picture of what their faith looked like. So I mentioned in the book that I did have a lot of colleagues, academic colleagues, who were not familiar with religion, who considered women's involvement in Christian churches to be akin to an abusive relationship or to be trapped or to be brainwashed in some way. And I personally didn't have that experience in the church and the women I met don't have that experience. So I wanted to show that You know, the church can be a a tremendous place of comfort, of healing, of connection, um, but it's not all Mm -hmm. one-sided. So I tried as much as possible to show that balanced perspective, because that also gives us an answer as to why women would stay in such a space that doesn't allow us to resort to the brainwash argument. Yeah, that's a great point. Mm-hmm. I've been having this conversation with a few people now and they're often saying, you know, but yeah, there was this good part and this, you know, this other part, but I just, 
And we had Jonathan Martin on the show recently, and he said, said the same thing. It'd be so much easier for us if it was 100% toxic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's not for any of us. Like hardly anything is. Yeah. It's what makes it so much more difficult and confusing to parse out and ultimately to leave. Yeah. Uh, whatever that, that happens to be, uh, the relationship, the community, a friend living in a particular geographic area. Can I ask what interested you personally? Like what brought Katie to this? So I myself have, you know, grew up in the church. My dad was a pastor. I have a family of pastors, of um, uncles and aunts who are pastors. And then I had my own experience in my 20s of questioning things and just feeling, not questioning God, not questioning uh, scripture, but questioning church culture and feeling like I don't fit with this. And some of these rules or things I've been told don't make sense to me anymore. Um, so it was really a personal experience of trying to find a church community that I could fit in. And I did briefly find that while I was living in Spain. I found a wonderful, small, inclusive community. And then when I moved to the UK, I tried to find that again, and I just couldn't. And I went to so many churches and so many different uh, parachurches and finally gave up because I was so tired of trying to fit myself into that mold or to find a space that aligned with my values and my interpretation of the Bible and of Christianity. Um, and, you know, to your point, Jonathan, as well, if it, if it not being all bad and having so many positive elements, you know, there's still things about Christian community and about church that I really miss. And I hear this all the time from people I talk to who are no longer involved in the church, that they are glad they're out. They're not looking to go back, but there are certain elements that they miss and that doesn't go away. And I think that really speaks to the place in society that church has and the value that it can bring, which cannot be undermined and can't be explained away. Um, so that's my own experience with it. And I wanted to shed light on that experience to make sense of what had happened with me and, and some of my friends and cousins, and then to see what the experience was like for other women. I really appreciated that you were able to hold the tension, like the dialectic of there were beautiful things that happened and there were toxic, really painful mm. things that continue to happen. And I know like even in my own journey of unpacking my faith, um, that was the hard part because yeah. even so yeah. my undergrad was sociology and I remember studying everything as like a young adult and being like, okay, so this is actually, like, if I look at the systems and structures we've inherited and that have influenced why we believe what we believe and why churches function this way, I'm like, mm -hmm. okay, so this isn't all God ordained. And then I would take that and try and mix it with my theology and my leaders at church. And there was no resonance. There was such a disconnect because they're like, no, like your systems and structures have nothing to do with it. This is how God is ordained for structures to be, whether it be women in leadership or people part of, that are part of the LGBTQ plus community or whatever that is. So I loved that you were able to bring those both together and just even honor positive attributes that have come out of churches. So one of the big things you touched on a lot was community. And so what do you think it is about this? Because I feel like so many of the women you interviewed said they stayed for the community. Mm. Like, why were they part of a church, even when it was painful, even when they felt like they were having to fit into this mold? What do you think it is about that community piece that keeps us there. What I have to say as well, the research sites that I was focused on were big urban spaces, right? So London and New York. So you'll be able to, you know, you'll be able to speak much better about community in a less urban metropolitan space. But from what I saw, 
you know, these are big cities. These are people in their 20s and 30s, which is a, t- a really big transitional time for a lot of people. It's post-university. If you go to university, it's finding a job, it's establishing a career, it's possibly finding a partner, maybe having children. There is a lot of flux and uncertainty in this period. And it can be quite lonely, especially if you're new to a city. It's hard to connect with people. Um, and the church provides a really nice container and a nice space to connect with other people and not just to connect with people, but in a very intimate and close way. And, you know, you can meet people through exercise classes or through work or through volunteer activities, but it doesn't have the intimacy that the church community brings. And there's various Mm -hmm. reasons for that. You know, if you think about sharing and prayer, uh, praying for one another, confessing to one another, accountability groups, or even the intimacy and emotion involved in worship services, especially if they're charismatic, all of those are intimacy building projects. And that's going to foster these closer relationships with other people. And I think fundamentally as humans, we want that closeness with people. And especially if you're in a transitional space in life and you're in a big city, that need is greater and it's even harder to find. Yeah, that's so real. We lived in a small, my wife and I moved to Finland for six years when uh, we were first married and uh, for her to do her master's. And, you know, we, we slipped into this completely different culture and we left church and it was this really healing and therapeutic time in our life. Then we moved back to Toronto and it was like the biggest culture shock. Mm -hmm. And, and I especially felt lonely. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And I never, I'd never felt lonely in Toronto. I'd grown up half my, like a good chunk of my life in Toronto. It was home, yeah. but suddenly everything that you just described, you know, was so real. We had young kids. We were trying to figure out our own selves and where we were at now and all this stuff. And I remember the, like the effort you would have to go through mm-hmm. to schedule time with someone mm-hmm. months down the road. I remember we once had asked some friends, you know, would you be interested in putting something on the calendar like every Friday? And this kind of look of confused horror <laughs> pass, passing over their eyes before they were able to catch it was like it it gutted me. Yeah. And so and so like like uh you kind of said about church, like you get tired of pushing, mm. you get tired of asking, of trying. Mm. Uh so that's yeah, that's fascinating to me. Yeah, that church on the one hand provides this social glue that is so desperately needed, especially in urban spaces, mm-hmm. uh, but can only offer so so much. Uh, what were you going to say, Trafina? Well, I was to say it's interesting because there is so much beauty and power in community, and you know, like breaking that loneliness and all of that. But then you also continue to speak about even when you in your parts about purity culture, how often the guilt and the shame wasn't for themselves. They were like, this was pleasurable. This was great. I morally am okay with this, but I feel guilty and shameful because of the leaders around me, because of the community. So somehow I, I, so this is where I struggle because I think there was so much power and beauty and community and in the intentionality the church has put into that, but where's the line from it not being manipulative. And it's like, so we're praying on your lonely moment. We're getting you into this great community and now you have to abide. Yeah by assistance instructor. Can I can I read your words, Katie? I think it's a great point, Rafina. Go for it. Page 98. Liv felt guilt, not because she violated her own beliefs around sex, 
but because she violated other evangelicals' mm. beliefs. Mm -hmm. It was as if her fellow Christians foisted the guilt upon her, and she could either receive it with open arms and change her sexual behavior, or resist it by keeping her sexual life a secret. Mm. Secrets are great community. <laughs> like, but that's exactly it. Like, yeah, and this is this double-edged sword, right? That the more intimate and close you are with people in your community, the higher the expectations become of abiding by certain norms that enable the community to be what it is. So it, it's a real paradox in a way, like in order for the Christian community to distinguish itself and to be separate from other forms of connection and community, it has to have boundaries around it. But the boundaries that are often erected are the ones that are limiting, constraining, constricting, hurtful to people inside it. So how do we have that the benefits of community without some of the toxic elements. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which, which comes into the accountability, right. Where you also talked about, you know, at its best accountability can help us remain true to our own goals. Yeah. But at its worst becomes this, this policing and controlling mm -hmm. threatening kind of behavior that that I've certainly witnessed firsthand. I remember yeah. in uh, trying to share this without incriminating details. I I remember individuals telling me that they were expected to check in with their small group leaders in an almost hourly basis via text message. Mm. I'm like, that's batshit crazy. That's like, mm -hmm. that is that the, the more abundant life that, that Jesus promised us? Surely not. Yeah. Or, you know, it, instances of women feeling the need or wanting each other to police each other's bodies and the way that they dress, the way that they move their bodies, the way that they present themselves, like their affect, if they're giggling too loud, you know, they... So, so when it gets into those micro levels, and I think when it comes down to policing the body at such a level, it can be really dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, and this is something that ha often happens with amongst women. So it's not, it's even outside the sort of male patriarchal hierarchy that we traditionally think of. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes though, it is us as women who uphold so many of the patriarchal views that we are in, right? We end up pulling totally other within the box. I loved when you talked about, like you summarized a feminist theory of women being able to manipulate their desires in such a way to subvert their wants into a patriarchal society. And I thought that was so interesting because it's the continuing to keep yourself small, to mold yourself, to fit into the, you know, the, whatever the messaging that you're getting. And so even when we you speak about accountability, Jonathan, your story or Katie, I like my struggle comes with what we're teaching women and men about who they are. Like what I thought was so fascinating about your yeah. book was there was, and this is not like a critique on your book, but I think it's, it's just interesting about our faith. Our faith is there's so little about Jesus, right? Cause in, in my life, mm. Jesus is the, like the freedom, Jesus is love. Jesus is the part that brings peace. And so instead what we've spent so much of our faith doing like perpetuating and messaging is, well, you're actually horrible. And so you need accountability and you need community to keep you around all the time to, to you know, to keep you in check, to be telling you what you can and cannot do. Are you giggling too much? The amount of times I have conversations with girlfriends where it's like, okay, well, I need you to discern with me if this is the right job or not, which is great. I think there's power in discerning in community. What I'm realizing now as a grown woman is 
how I don't trust my own instincts because I've been taught that my instincts are bad. So when you talk about policing around a body, I'm like, that actually plays into so many spheres and why we still have like you talk about like the New York or the London church where they allow, sorry, I'm talking a lot here. I apologize. It's gotten long Um, where they allow women in leadership, but still you end up with mostly men in leadership because you have groups of women who are taught to not trust their own selves and their bodies and their minds. Yeah. And I love this, this quote that I include in there from the poet and writer, Kathy Park Hong, where she talks about this disfigurement of senses. And she's writing about that in terms of, racism in the U.S. So that's the original context. And I borrowed her understanding of this disfigurement of senses of this dis- and looking at the root of that word, the etymology is this distrust of senses. And that happens so often for women, women of color, working class, women that are experiencing marginalization on so many multiple mm-hmm. levels, then become taught to distrust their intuition or their sense that something's not right here there is discrimination going on and I don't even trust it anymore because I've been told so many times that it's not happening or that it's all in my head. And that's really dangerous when it reaches that point. Absolutely. I mean, even, even within, and this is, I'm sure no surprise, but it's like, there was this pervasive message that we shouldn't trust our emotions, that uh, emotionality is sort of like the shortcut to sin. And so definitely don't be led by your emotions. Okay, well, that's one box. But then the next box was, you know, but women, they they certainly are led by their emotions. So, mm-hmm. so somehow uh, women, the, the messaging I, I, we received, I received, you know, was that ultimately, even in the church, women are kind of these temptresses that can't control their own sin and certainly will lead you to sin, but yet are also somehow to be held responsible for male sexuality, among other issues, right? Mm-hmm. The, the whole thing of the burden of sexual purity falling on women to keep men from sexual sin, but also we can't trust women to be in leadership because they're so easily right. led astray. I'm like, this doesn't compute Mm-hmm. One bit. This is not even even within the false, the completely false narrative riddled with lies. It is incoherent, right? And and I think there's a lot of those paradoxes or contradictions mm-hmm. within th- that we're talking about or that I explore in my book. Of on the one hand, you've received a calling from God to pursue ministry, to pursue ordination, and you are to trust that prophecy that came to you in the service. On the other hand, there's no positions for you and we can't open any up and we don't want to put you forward. So what are you supposed to do when you have these competing messages that the church leadership is telling you? And also this competing message, you're hearing one message from God and you're hearing another message from your church leaders. And that could be part of that disfigurement that happens of senses of, can I even trust what I think God is saying to me when it contradicts everything I'm seeing on the ground. Katie, can you run us through some of just kind of like a high level overview of some of the big areas? Like if somebody's listening to this conversation and they're not already immediately familiar with it as, as clearly as the three of us are, um, what, what are some of the, the big ticket items that are causing single women to feel so alienated? So one of them is structural ideals of normative womanhood. 
which includes being straight, being white, being middle to upper class. And so that's on a very structural level. Like if you're already not fitting in those boxes, just by the way you've been born, then you're already going to be on a, on a, on a back foot and a marginalized place. And then there's the sort of interior elements. So if your personality is one that is ambitious, that's considered feisty or a word that's often used as intimidating, um, then that's going to also create marginalization. If you're not married, if you haven't had children married to a man, um, then that's going to be another level of it. And then there are other sort of smaller, not smaller, but other additional factors that can come into play. So if you identify as a feminist and feminism is really important to you, that can be slot you into this troublesome category, even if the pastors are on paper okay with feminism. If you desire church leadership, if you feel called to church leadership, and maybe your church endorses it on a doctrinal level, um, but you're really pushing for it, and you don't fit the aforementioned categories, then you're going to feel marginalized as well. So there are sub, those are kind of the main key ones that I came across. Um, I know other research has found that women who identify as LGBTQ also really experience that marginalization and tend to leave. I personally didn't come across women identifying in that way. They all at least told me they were straight. But I do want to flag that that's another key element that's come up elsewhere with other research. And and what's the what's the level of of research on on this? Like mm-hmm. uh, you put a few years into this, right? Yeah, about eight, <laughs> about eight years. You know, plus a lifetime, depending on how you want to calculate it. Um, I would say a lot of research has been done on women in Christianity, but not with an unmarried population. So previous research, you know, this was this was a really popular area of study in the early 2000s and the 90s, looking at women in different Christian denominations, including Catholicism and women's marginalization or their struggles for equality. But it was mostly with married women or women who were in leadership positions already and were experiencing pushback. Um, my study specifically is looking at the unmarried group, uh, which, you know, continues to grow and can, you know, women tend to get married later and the specific struggles they face because they're not married. So they're already not meeting some of these key markers. They're already on the back foot. Mm-hmm. I thought it was so interesting when you even called out so many different social media influencers and you kind of like listed like, so what does that look like? Because it's not just like you had said, even about the London church, it wasn't that they were up at the front talking about women not being in leadership or, you know, purity culture, or like sexual roles and all of that. But it's just this pervasive culture that seeps in from every part. So when you have so many of your female Christian influencers who are white, who are like heteronormative, who, you know, often um, are very like able-bodied, like just what it all looks like and the way they live their life and they're married and they have this sort of like parenting style. It's very, it is, it's just very interesting how the messaging runs deep on so many levels. Absolutely. And I use the term the ideal woman Mm -hmm. because it comes across in so many insidious forms. You know, I originally started this project by looking at books that were geared towards Christian women. And even when you read some of the descriptions and books of people, they'll mention her lily white skin or her soft blonde hair. You know, the way that whiteness is associated with the ideal 
whether it's the cover of the book, the stock image that's mm-hmm. on there, or the little description that's that's like plugged in, or as you say, the social media influencers, it's happening on so many different levels uh, to construct and reinforce that this is what the ideal is. A hundred percent. Yes. Like preach. And Trifina, I'm sorry, can I just say personally, like for all the ways that we've spread these whiteness messages and for for you having to grow up in this mess. Thanks. So I'm, thank you. It's, I'm still figuring it out. The thanks, Jonathan. Katie, you, you, on this topic, page 144, it was very, very helpful for me. Mm. Um, uh, I'm going to read from you in a second, but it was helpful because, you know, having untangled a lot of theological things, we grew up in purity culture too, and wrestling through all of that stuff. And having uh, chatted about it sometimes with my parents or with with pastors and, and folks in the next generation up, trying to understand exactly how this happened, right? And often it'll come down to, but we never preached that. We never taught you that. We never like, show me the one book that, that, that tells you to hate yourself with that kind of strong language. But it's not the one thing, right? So you wrote here on page 144 in regarding the ideal woman. More importantly, these social media posts dynamically interact with other discursive material, such as magazine articles, sermons, purity books, and Bible study texts. These discursive parts link with one another and build the seemingly coherent figure of an ideal woman. And then uh, you quoted uh, Giselle de Pollock to say that basically these these visions acquire the authority of the of the obvious and that's that's exactly what happens what it means to be an ideal christian woman has simply become so obvious mm-hmm. and and i and that's obviously what we're talking about here but I, I i feel like the exact same principle is what's taken place in terms of an ang- building a theology of an angry retributive god a God that you have to perform for, you know, these kinds of things. It wasn't the one thing. It was this whole interactive discourse and you end up with something that's simply obvious. And and how can then you even begin to fight it when it's just the water that you grew up in? But that can make it even more confusing as to, I don't know why I feel marginalized or I don't even know why I have this image of God, but I do Mm. because it's so pervasive. So it's even harder to pinpoint or untangle or understand or make sense of. And as you say, even harder to kind of push against Mm -hmm. when it's ubiquitous. And then it comes back to you. Somehow you're the one who's problematic because you have a distorted view Mm. of God or you're struggling with your sexuality or whatever it is, right? Yeah. Yeah. I just, so when you were talking, Jonathan, I just had a thought because we were talking about how whiteness has become so pervasive in our faith, in our faith community, and how even our theology plays out. And I loved how, Katie, you talked about the if-then model, how so much of purity culture was, okay, if you do this, then this will happen. And so how many times have we had a pastor stand up and say, well, I waited and look at this hot wife my like God has given me. And you're like, what is happening? But just even this it like it had to be very linear. If you do this, like a, like one plus two will equal three. And I feel like we came out of like the industrial revolution or like you know the scientific revolution with this very we need to be very linear in our thinking. And I think like in my understanding, it's been a very white male 
way of thinking, right? Like I think of how many leadership podcasts are like, don't come into my office with a problem unless you already have three solutions in your mind. Like don't come and just talk about it. We're not going to shoot the shit. But if I think of, you know, Indian culture, or even like ancient Greece, you sort of think of like the Agora where, you know, all the philosophers sat around and talked. They just talked. There wasn't an endpoint in in mind. There wasn't a linear thought. And out of that birth democracy, out of that came like the Hippocratic Oath. And there was something so powerful about it not having to be linear. But I think yeah. we have made our faith so linear and we have taken the gravity out of it and trivialized it and made it what? Yeah, I think that's, <laughs> that's an excellent point. I think it shows how religion is so dependent and malleable mm-hmm. depending on the culture in which it is springing up and how what you describe of the if then or the solution focused or the meritocracy yes. focused version of Christianity is very much aligned with Western white capitalist yes. society and follows that logic very much so, which doesn't need to be there because it's not inherently there. It's a product of the culture that it's interacting with. I agree, which again, we're so affected by the systems and structures around us, right? In our faith. But, mm-hmm. um, okay. So I have a question then, because you talk a lot about reconstructing and how, or like so many of these women are grown, like are raised in these environments where this is the messaging. And so you talked about how, so some, somebody had to leave because they were just tired or they had to reconstruct it for their own selves. So this might be too personal. How have you reconstructed for yourself? Like, what does that look like? Cause I would imagine it's an ongoing process. Yeah, it is an ongoing process. And even the course of doing this research, you know, I went through many different phases of, I want to burn down the whole institution and I want to really destroy it. And I'm angry to, I miss it and I want to re-engage with it in some way, but I don't know how. And, and now I can honestly say I'm at a place of peace where I don't operate on either extreme and I have tremendous respect for people that are still engaged closely with Christian community or are pastoring or are working towards a more inclusive and equitable version of Christianity. And I also feel peace on where I'm at mm-hmm. of not being regularly in, involved in a church community, but still highly invested in terms of the work I do and the personal relationships I foster and my own personal practices and being able to do that from the outside, if you want to mm-hmm. call it that. Um, so I'd say, you know, over the last nine years of doing this project altogether, it's been a tremendously transformative time for me. And I've come out the other side to a place of real peace and um, contentment. I love that. I'm st- like, I'm so grateful you can walk in peace in where you're at right now. That's really beautiful. Mm. I completely agree. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, can you talk a little bit more about what where people where other women are ending up? And you use the language of like mm. liminal spaces, and they're oh, kind of yeah. neither in nor out. Are there, are there, you know, kind of distinctives to pain points and good things to that that liminal space? So it's hard for me to know when to cut off the research or when to cut mm. off the book because obviously these women's lives are continuing, and I continue to know what's going on in their lives. And I had to pick a point of saying the story ends here for the book or for the research and their stories continue. And there isn't a one size fits all. So some of the women that I engaged with and was really close to for many years continue to go to church and to struggle with it and to want to change it and to feel tired and frustrated, but to also feel 
really called to stick in there. And others are not involved at all anymore. Some don't even call themselves a Christian anymore. Whereas, you know, when I met them eight years ago, they were pursuing ordination. Mm -hmm. So there's been a massive change in their own personal life. A lot of it depends on what other personal life events have intervened, if they've met somebody, if they haven't, where they've moved, what they has happened to them health-wise. There's been a lot of intervening factors. Um, but there's so many gradients of involvement with the Christian community and changes in their personal faith. And the two don't always align with each other. Yeah, makes sense. Absolutely. Meaning that the faith can really, you know, someone's faith can really stay intact and they can still call themselves a Christian and feel really close to God, but not be involved in church whatsoever. And others are really involved in church, but are questioning their faith deeply. So there isn't uh, always a alignment between the two, which I'm sure you know. Definitely. I'd love to actually dig a little deeper onto this here. Mm-hmm. My wife and I left church for 10 years. Today, we are pastors in a small, messy, little thing. And it's it's wonderful and hard and all the things. And I was in, I was on a church on Sunday and I was in a bad place. Just my mental health has been all over the map and our foster daughter has been keeping us up late. And, and I was in church on Sunday and I just had this, this sense that I was being carried up to the altar and I couldn't bring myself there. And I, mm-hmm. I thought, I'm like, I feel like the guy whose friends are pulling off the tiles of the roof to lower him through the roof to meet with Jesus because he can't get there himself. And I thought to myself, if if church is not a place that's safe or a place where either you're learning to love or you're being lovingly carried up to the altar that you don't have strength to get to yourself, then get out. Like if the, <laughs> I have no business encouraging anyone to find a church that's not you know, like that. And I think the other aspect of that is is perhaps actual like fostering divine encounter. Mm-hmm. And, and you mm-hmm. quote quite a few of your sources kind of saying the same thing that it's that it's God that I'm drawn to. And and mm-hmm. God is here and and the church is kind of this other thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you don't really explore that mystical aspect at all in the book. Is there a a reason for that? Or do you have thoughts? Yeah, this is something I really struggled with. And I was at an academic conference last week and and the question came up, we're all sociologists of religion. And the question came up, which was basically like, what do you do with God in your research? How do you make sense of it? Of him, her, it, them? How do you deal with the mystical elements that present itself when you're studying religion? Because it comes up all the time. And, you know, as scholars, we're often trained to like, let's make sense of it. Let's analyze it. What's going on psychologically for them? And I didn't want to do that because I think that takes away from the individual's experience of God and the mystical. And because I don't think we can explain it. Mm. Uh, So I was really caught in this place of this scholarly approach to untangling it all and explaining it all away and this more human approach you could say of letting it stand on its own and as one of my writing teachers said like writing god just writing him straight Mm. writing it very straight of this is the experience and this was their experience with healings or miracles and i'm not going to untangle it or try to make sense of it i'm going to let it stand on its own and let the reader do that work Mm. that's great thank you i like that i can really appreciate that that yeah 
I think actually it just made it so relatable because even as you were sharing stories that they were coming home from like a Holy Spirit weekend, they encountered Holy Spirit and it felt mm-hmm. transformed, but are still wrestling with the system and structure that they're in. I'm like, oh, that is yeah. very relatable. It's just, it's human. It's yeah. both end. You know, I appreciated you writing it straight. And I think the reality of it is, as you mentioned, Jonathan, that church is often a space where you can encounter God in a more profound way. Certainly you can outside of church. But if that is a space that enables enables that deep connection, then that is going to be hugely beneficial and a huge draw for people to continue in church, even if their relationship with God is continuing outside of that space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. I will just be honest. I think that's a big part of my faith journey, right? There's still like, there's the communal mystical part of the corporate gathering. Anyways, that's a whole other conversation. (laughs) A good one. (laughs) Jonathan, I feel like you're in deep thought. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just sitting with all this. And Katie, I really appreciate uh, the, the things that you've brought together for this. And um like my heart is just moved and grieved, you know, mm-hmm. that people, women in particular, but but human people are desperately looking for belonging, for friendship, mm-hmm. for transformation, for encounter with the divine. Mm-hmm. If if you're sitting here as a pastor, whether or not you're male or not, what more could you want? from the people that are turning up to your church. They literally want to be there and be transformed and bring their full selves. And, but, but then five years, 10 years or less or more, the fruit is for many, but especially, you know, for single women and, and obviously the various intersections that you've highlighted, the fruit is bad Mm -hmm. And, and not just, Oh, it didn't fit, but you know, mental health collapse, mm-hmm. suicidal ideation, mm. really bad, right? We've been touching on this with, I don't know if you if you've crossed paths with Bridget Eileen Rivera and some of her work on um, on what it means to be LGBTQ in the church, and the research there is damning that young, especially young people. Mm-hmm. Typically, young people who approach the church, their risk of suicide decreases unless they identify uh, with the LGBTQ in some way, in which case their risk of suicide measurably increases. Mm-hmm. And uh, and this is obviously not strictly what we're talking about, but it just, it deeply troubles me mm-hmm. as it, I guess it should, obviously, but I just... I'm I'm just sat here with it that that the church in so many places is not bringing life to so many people and so many categories of people. It's instead bringing death, destruction, self doubt, and and I'm just like, what what the actual f? Mm-hmm. I'm I'm grieved and, and troubled, and again, not surprised. Like I'm not sitting here naively going, oh wow, I didn't know about this. I've witnessed it. I've seen it. I've been a part of it, um, you know, to my shame. What do you think is going to happen? Yeah. But put your, sit in the futurist's chair for a minute. Like what's happening 
what's going to happen to the church in the next five or 10 years if we don't figure this out, which every indication is that we're not going to figure it out. I think there is going to be a breaking point. I think what we're seeing in the U.S. and the U.K. is I mean, the numbers of Christians and especially evangelicals continues to go down. Mm-hmm. The Some preliminary research shows the group most likely to leave are single women, are women in general. That's the group that historically has sat in the pews, kept the church afloat in terms of the functioning, but it also in terms of the numbers. And I think we're going to continue to see a decline until there is change. And I think when the decline gets steep enough and serious enough, there will be eyes opening and an actual desire to what can we do to fix this outside of trendy branding Mm -hmm. and catchy events that will lure people in what can we do to systemically shift things so that we don't completely dissolve right that's my hope i think it's going to have to get worse before it gets better but i do think that you know a lot of church leaders don't care about any of these things but i think they will care when the numbers continue to go down and christianity is even more under threat yeah, right. Like, I mean, we already know that, that the vast majority of the congregation sitting there in front of us is women. <laughs> and yeah. and yet the vast majority of people sitting up on the standing up on the stage are men. Like yeah. I died at one of your uh people's comments that what well, like there's too much white dick on stage <laughs> or something to that effect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's one of my favorite. She always keeps it real. So <laughs> real. She's my favorite. <laughs> yeah. She's a lot of favorites. I mean, I also have to say, you know, I study Christianity and politics now uh, in in the U.S. and I have done a bit in the U.K. as well. And I think the influence of right and far right politics on Christianity is going to also put so much pressure on the faith and is also going to bring its own sort of splintering effect that will encourage a breaking point as well and encourage a systemic shift as well so i think it's going to come from multiple angles yeah for sure yeah uh to to the woman who is listening who has kind of been on the fence and feels like there's been a lot of pain a lot of hurt but it's everything she knows but but there's something twigging in her as she's listening to this what would you say i'd say you're not alone hmm I wrote this book for you. That was, you know, you used to do all these writing workshops and it's like, who's your ideal reader? My ideal woman reader is that woman mm. who is involved in the church, who feels like they're the only one experiencing these things. It's questioning things. And my hope is to show them that they're not the only one who is feeling that way. I think that's beautiful because there is a lot of us who are bone dead, tired and yeah. So, and I think you talked about the power of pe- so many people just want to be known. And so to know yeah. you're not alone and your experience is not isolated. That, yeah. That's the community right there. That is powerful. So thank yeah. you. So I don't know if it's public, but you had told us that you are pregnant. And what does that look like for you then now preparing to embark on this journey of motherhood? I'm not sure if you already have a child or children in your life. So that is a whole new space. And then, so what, because we, we talked about how so much of our messaging was not just stuff that was said, but like stuff that we picked up through osmosis. So I'm just mm-hmm. curious not mm-hmm. to put pressure on you, not to like, you know, maybe you think it's something you haven't, but is there stuff that you have thought 
through of what you want to impart to this child, male or female? I want them to have a expansive understanding of God. Mm-hmm. I think the understanding of God in the spiritual realm that I grew up with was very narrow, unnecessarily so. And I want to bring expansiveness into their life to understand that God takes different forms, can be encountered in different ways, comes through in different ways. And to have that sort of curiosity and openness that I didn't have. Hmm. Well, thank you. One that is beautiful. I think that is so powerful to build that platform for children to learn from and to grow and to develop on their own. And two, I think that's what you did for us and in the way that you wrote this book and you, mm-hmm. way you allowed your curiosity to guide you and just even the way you shifted your questions to make it more inclusive to what was coming up. So thank you. I know in my own heart reading it, I was just, I, I told you earlier, I was raging, but also I was just, it was, it was very empowering to see it all written down and laid mm-hmm. out in the way you did. So thank you for spending time with us, for spending the last eight years putting this together and just sharing your life um, with all of us. You're very welcome. I'm glad it resonated with you. And one thing I, I asked a cousin that I'm very close with who grew up in a similar background, when I started writing the book, what would you want me to write mm-hmm. about? And she said, I want to outsource my experience to you and you to make sense of it for me. I want you to write it down for me and explain it to me. What just What has happened the yeah. last... 25 years because I cannot really make sense of it. So I I thought that was a really helpful charge to be given Yeah, uh, to untangle, not just her experience, but obviously hers was very similar to many of the women I met and try to explicate it in a way that at least presents a story of what's gone on. No, it's beautiful. And I think even in the preface, you talked about how writing this is your journey of rest. And so was it cathartic for you? Did you feel like you were able to make sense of your story and hers? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's, uh, there's a real sense of peace that comes when you, for me, when I'm able to write, but when I'm also able to make sense of something that doesn't just feel these contradictions and these confusing messages, but that actually puts them on paper and doesn't resolve the tension or doesn't resolve the contradiction but at least has it written out. That I feel like is just so an example real. of how to live. So thank you. <laughs> it's so good. I'm just doing my best. <laughs> We're grateful. Right. Katie, what's, uh, what's, what's your next project? So about two years ago, right before the 2020 presidential election in the U.S., I started a project looking at evangelicals and Trump, Trump supporters. Are, are, are they out there? <laughs> this was another puzzle for me, though. You know, why would... Christians vote for Trump? Why would Christian women vote for Trump when he seemingly, to some view, goes against a lot of Christian values and a lot of uh, women, women in general? So that sort of question, paradox, contradiction has been driving this research on. So I've finished two years. I have another three years on the project. I'm actually shifting my focus now just to look at women who are evangelical white women who support um, right-wing politics. I am very fascinated to watch for that. There's a large, (laughs) I have an, I actually, I have an infographic. I just got back from the designer. That's like three pages summarizes the last two years. I can send it to you if you want. So you can see kind of some hot takes from, uh, what I found so far. Brilliant. 
Awesome. Katie, thank you so much. Uh, Friends, Dr. Katie Gadini, I'll post links uh, in the show notes, obviously, and more details to come. But thank you uh, for sharing your time with us today. Thank you both. Friends, go check the show notes for links to her book, The Struggle to Stay, Why Single Evangelical Women Are Leaving the Church. That infographic that she mentioned is also uh, in the post at jonathanpuddle.com. You'll find links to Katie's website, katiegadini.com. You'll also find her on Instagram and elsewhere as Dr. Katie Gadini. Friends, last month I mentioned that I'd lost a number of patrons and that my book sales were down. Just as these economic conditions are impacting other folks, they've been impacting my supporters, which obviously impacts me and my ability to support my family. I asked if you were in a position to support me that you might consider that. Friends, I've been overwhelmed by the support. I want to give just a shout out to David, Jemina, Brad, Jody, Sophie, Mads, Christine, Nancy, Mark, Tanya, Andrew, and Molly, who have all come on as patrons in the last month, whether uh, supporting monthly or annually. Friends, that support means so much to me. It would really be helpful to have another another 10 or so patrons, uh, whether you're giving $3 a month or $15 a month, whatever you're able to give really goes a long way to uh, supporting me in this work. Please do not feel any pressure if you're not able, if, if you're feeling the bite the same way many of us are, then I know that I'm praying for you, uh, praying for all of us to be sustained through this difficult time. But if you are in a place where you could spare, uh, you can head to patreon.com slash jonathanpuddle, or you can go to jonathanpuddle.com slash support if you'd rather give a one-time gift, or donation, anything like that. As well as you'll find my books, you can order those directly from me, as well as Amazon or anywhere else. Friends, this has been such a delight. We have got some really exciting interviews coming up. Check back in two weeks for the B-side to this, where Trefina and I kept the microphone rolling and riffed deep on these themes that uh, Katie brought up. So if you want to really know what we're thinking, that is available very shortly, the B-side to this interview. I can't wait to share our next guest. It is uh, it is fire, man. You guys are going to have your socks blown off. Trust me. Share this with a friend. Tell your friends to go check out Dr. Katie Gadini's work. Let them get in on this. Uh, maybe we can start changing the direction of this ship and uh, create spaces where everyone can thrive and be celebrated. All right, my friends. Grace and peace to you. Much love. We'll be back soon.